hear me. Скажи мне, американец, в чем сила? А вы что, собираетесь на ней жениться? Да. Ух, красота-то какая, лепота. Таможня дает добро. И вообще не называй меня, пожалуйста, Вероника. Кто я? Вот кто я? От русские земля, единый быть. Hi, my name's Ali, and this is the Rus Files Unite podcast, where we watch Russian films and films with a Russian connection. As always, I'm joined by a guest, and today my guest is Spencer. Hi, Spencer. Hello, Ali. So, long-time listeners will remember you, Spencer, from the Tsar episode, which was like three or four, so if you haven't caught that one, go back and listen and hear about that traumatizing film, but... Uh, <laughs> For people who haven't heard you before, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, um, I guess my main interest, the thing that I like to do is watch movies, and I have a podcast on Japanese film, mainly focused on Kurosawa, but Slash kind of turned into an excuse just to watch Japanese movies from like the 50s and 60s, just kind of so I can talk about it with my friend Joel, who's been on, I think, the Sun episode. Uh, yes, it was indeed, yeah. Yeah, and um, what else? Uh, uh, I write about films for uh, my own blog, and I was trying to break into the world of film writing, and, uh, you know, that's kind of it. Cool. Last time you were on, you were not nearly as far along with your podcast project. Uh, how many do you have left to go at this point? Uh, we do episodes every two weeks, so that is... One cursor per month, so I think it's four left. Oh, wow. Okay. So probably by the time this comes out, you'll have wrapped up. Do you have an idea for what the next project might be? Oh, yeah. We, we've known for probably uh, close to a year at this point. Oh, cool. It was Joel's idea, because we were trying to figure out what director to pick next, and um, I stupidly said Spielberg because he has a whole bunch of movies, but then we both realized that's kind of boring to do. <laughs> and so uh, Joel pointed out, well, you love Spike Lee. Why don't we just do Spike Lee? And he's like, oh, yeah, that's a good point. So we're switching to Spike Lee after that. Things will be a little different because it's American and sure. modern. And, uh, you know, it, it's he's a different director and it's a different era. So it's the format won't be exactly the same, but it'll be uh, try to stick to the same things we did before. Cool. Yeah, I uh, for shame as a you know supposed like film buff, I've I've not actually seen any any Spike Lee films yet at all. I mean, by the time this comes out, hopefully I'll have, will have seen Black Klansman. I love Spike Lee. That is not one of my favorites, but I like that he's mainstream again. Hmm. Yeah, because it feels like has it been a while since since he's had a new movie out or? Uh, oh no, he's been producing. Stuff like every, at least every other year. Oh wow! Since eighty six, I think. Oh gosh! 
Oh yeah, and he like directs documentaries. He did like a Kobe documentary where I think it's one where it's this Kobe during a an NBA game, and like just focused on him and like the been moving and shooting, like the trash talk between players and stuff. And he does like did one Hurricane Katrina, and uh, he does music videos. He kind of does a whole bunch of stuff. He filmed stand up specials. He did I think um, a couple of Chris Rock ones. Hmm. He's the I think he did Trevor Noah. There's some like younger black comedian he did his I can't remember who it is but like uh, there's a whole lot to pick from with Spike Lee and uh, if you for start out I'd go with do the right thing yeah that's the one I always hear is like his you know maybe masterpiece or or some or you know certainly like best film uh, most people say that's his best film I I'm not alone I ha- I have other film friends and acquaintances who also uh, love his movie Bamboozled, which is about Mitchell C and blackface and how black people are represented in American media. Oh, wow. It's uh, really something. It's not for everyone. I understand why it's it's divisive, but uh, I personally think it's his best film. It's it's Spike Asmo Spike, Mm. which will irritate some people to no end, but... I love how uncomfortable and how unrelentingly angry the whole movie is. And Black Klansman is like a sanitized version of like that a bit of like Spike at his most angry and his most raw. But it's kind of he has Jordan Peele from Get Out to like kind of tamper down his sensibility to something more mainstream, which I kind of like but don't like because I but then again Spike does like Hollywood stuff like Inside Man and uh that's that's one good Hollywood one he did, but um, yeah, I don't know. He's had a, a fascinating career. Yeah, he definitely, like I say, I've you know not seen any of his films, but just from what I've read about him, he he's not somebody who has just found a formula that like quote unquote works and just goes, well, I'll just do that because that's what everyone expects of me, and you know that will make me the most money. He seems to be more interested in just doing a lot of different things. Oh, yeah. yeah. Cool. So back to the Kurosawa podcast. As I say, you're closer to the end of that project now. So looking back over it, are there films from Kurosawa that having rewatched them for for the podcast are now higher up your ranking of them or...? Oh, oh yeah, definitely. The one, your first episode, uh, Lower Depths, was... One of my least favorite initially, hmm. but then episode again made me realize that it's uh, better than I remember. But it's it's not his best by any stretch, but it's still a very good movie. It is just for the fifties era of him. It's notably different than everything around it, which kind of really threw me off completely. My hmm. first thought. Yeah, I need to revisit that one because I I enjoyed it quite a bit, but I think of the two. Uh, movies that I've watched when I've been on high and low. I think the the idiot was. I think I enjoyed more, and certainly it's like left a stronger impression. Like there's more of that that's kind of stuck with me. Hmm. But I don't know how much of that was just having it, read the book and having more stuff to hang the memories on. You know, helped yeah. it. I don't know. Yeah, like you, you're more familiar with Dostoevsky than Corky, probably. Oh yeah. I'd, I'd never read any Gorky. I was kind of, yeah, I sort of knew who he was, but no one had really, like, advocated reading him. In fact, everyone 
I'd asked who'd actually read any, who'd just gone, yeah, there's a reason nobody <laughs> reads him anymore. You know, now he doesn't have a state behind him mm. saying, this is the guy whose literature is the best. You should go read that, you know. And in terms of, the, like, the the non-Kurosawa films you covered, uh, any new favourites from there? Uh, new favourites? Okay, this is tough to narrow down. The first one that comes to mind is... Joel brought this up when he was on about Pigs and Battleships. Oh, yes, yeah. <laughs> that one I really want to watch. But, uh, yeah, Pigs and Battleships, it's a satire about Yakuza and these people who are poor who who trying to move up in the world. And it's it's kind of like a Coen Brothers-type movie in terms of its tone. Mm, and okay. it's... I'm not sure how to really talk about it without spoiling like some of the best parts of it that right. are best surprised, but like it's it's a good example of like Japanese movies of that era where Joel also mentioned this before on here, but I'm like a character has an abortion and it's just it just happens and it's no big deal and it's this depicts uh, like life of the lower class of like yeah it it sucks and this is what life is like for them in a very frank way, but it also happens to have this bizarre like a uh, comic tone at times that kind of comes out of nowhere that will cut you off guard and will make you just like laugh at inappropriate things. Although the director at Memora, he did another movie called the pornographers. That's this fucked up family drama that you should just watch without knowing anything about it. And it's just incredibly inappropriate and about a uh, class and modern sixties Japan. And that's, uh, it is really something else and has a weird framing device that I still don't really understand. And I've asked smarter film critic people about it that I've had in a podcast and they always say, I'm not sure what it's supposed to mean. It's just, I don't know, but pornographers and pigs and battleships are, are definitely like the to the big highlights. Yeah, yeah, I, I think on, on FlixWise they did a whole episode on, on Imamura and he did sound like if you've got the stomach for him, quite an interesting filmmaker. But yeah, like you say. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, certain things he likes to bring up a lot are like inappropriate parent-child relationships. Ooh. And like incest kind of comes up more often than you would think. And it's usually in form of like something humorous. Yeah, but, wow. Like, but it works. It's not It's not trying to be edgy. Like it's him just kind of like this is his kooky, weird sense of humor. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I'll have to have to check him out at some point. Uh, but yeah, certainly like Pigs and Battleships sounds like really, really interesting. Yeah, and, and the title is literal, in case you're wondering. Right. <laughs> it's, you're not like, uh, it's symbolic battleship? What's What are we looking for? <laughs> yeah. There are pigs and there are battleships that show up at various points. Super. So no, no one's going to be accused of false advertising. That's what that's no, no. what we like. Um, so cue slightly awkward transition, but from one like super famous name of uh, world cinema to another. So from Kurosawa, the movie we're talking about today uh, is a Tarkovsky movie, and I think I remember Spencer. You said this was one specifically uh, that you wanted to cover if you came back on on the show. Um, yeah. So what is it about? Ivan's childhood that you really like wanted to do this for the podcast it's uh, I'm listening to Tarkovsky movies this and Stalker and you covered Stalker and I 
I wouldn't want to talk about that. I feel like I'd sound incredibly stupid trying to talk about that. But no, no more so than than Lynn and I did. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good episode, but like stalkers is hard to discuss unless mm. you're like like a film critic or a film writer who who like knows film theory and, and shit. But like, but anyways, um, I'm childhood. It was this caught me by surprise. I didn't. I, I was expecting it to be more difficult. I'd seen mm. it before, but. I liked how the simplistic it was. It was dreamy. It was kind of, for lack of like a better word, it's kind of Tarkovsky's like mainstream-ish movie. Where like you, I feel like I could show this to my parents and they would at least appreciate it a little bit. Where Stalker, I can't really think of anyone I know who's not into films that would give a shit about Stalker. <laughs> yeah, I mean. If memory if memory serves, it was you who recommended it to Joel for his other podcast. Please don't send me into outer space. So yeah, partially just to get, I, I was curious the reaction slash. I think it is worth watching. Just as a, if you've ever listened to podcasts on Stalker, there there've been a couple on various podcasts. It's just a tough movie to dissect. Yeah, and it if ever there was a movie that takes its time, Stalker is that movie. Yeah, and like Tarkovsky, it was on the the Projection Booth podcast, the Stalker episode, and they they do like an in-depth film discussion, and then the host, Mike White, not the writer, actor, director, uh, Mike White, a different Mike White, he will interview people associated with the project or who wrote about it, and he interviewed some Tarkovsky, I think, historian, or someone who wrote a book on him, and apparently Tarkovsky, he he didn't mind if people fell asleep on his movies. And like with Stalker, he I think it was he found it a compliment if you fell asleep at any point. Wow, that's that's not a a common thing to hear about <laughs> film film directors. Yeah, yeah, like like he has this this weird not weird but kind of pretentious views on film on whether or not like he like he felt film should be challenging and you should and it makes you question things and not be entertainment like he he on purpose made it a punishing watch as as his films went on like this is him it's still kind of punishing a little bit but it's not like his later work where it's like it's it's impressive and beautiful but it's just like tough to get through yeah i mean one of the things is it's an hour shorter than some of his his other films it's on paper, it's a lean 90 minutes, but it still feels like quite a long 90 minutes. So, yeah, people uh, who haven't watched it yet should be aware of that. It doesn't take up that much time, but you'll feel like you've been there for a while. That sounds like really negative, but, you know, it's it's worth mentioning. Cool. So we should probably go away and, and watch the film. But as we do for every episode, we launch into the film by saying some, some Russian. And what we say is what Yuri Gagarin said when he was becoming the first uh, man in space. So it's kind of like, off we go. But in Russian, that's one word. And that one word is payekhali. So, three, two, one. Payekhali.
And we're back. Spencer and I have just watched Ivanova Djetstva, that is Ivan's childhood, Andrei Tarkovsky's first full film. And before we get into discussing what we thought about it this time around, Spencer's just going to give us a quick summary of the plot such as it is. So, over to you, Spencer. All right. It starts with this... Wait, was it a dream sequence it starts with, or him in in a tree? Um, it's, I think it's a dream slash imagination sequence. Like, the, literally the first shot you see of him is him behind us, like a spider's web. Oh, okay. And then it kind of, like, the camera almost, like, climbs a tree and yeah. you see him from there. It's either a dream or his imagination and he's thinking back to him with his mom. And that's a recurring theme. That's the whole thing of him thinking back to his mom and uh it's this well we can get into like describing what actually looks like and stuff later but so it goes from his dream to his mommy's wandering through, like through like the wilderness and he seems happy and then and the music is beautiful and then you this harsh cut to reality and he's in basically an abandoned house or a bunker or something i don't remember what he wakes up in but you just you get the sense of he just kind of wanders around initially and he's it's world war Two. i think it's maybe 45 it's not clear when the... no they never make it clear exactly where or when it's happening yeah but um so uh he kind of he travels and just wanders wanders through the wilderness the war-torn uh countryside of soviet union ends up at a uh impromptu bunker situation and this commanding officer is like, who's this kid? Why are you here? And Ivan keeps telling him, uh, call headquarters and tell number 51 I'm here. And the guy's like, uh, uh, sure, kid, whatever. And he calls someone else and tells him to uh, send the kid away. But then he does call 51. And, oh, that guy, the uh, commanding officer is Galtsev. Yeah, and um, then then he realized, oh, this kid is actually a scout for the army. Yeah, he totally didn't believe him to begin <laughs> with. Yeah, and like he doesn't act, and Ivan does not act like a child uh, initially. Like when he's with the adults, to get the sense of he thinks he's one of them. Oh, totally. Yeah. So he kind of just waits, and it's just him hanging out with the with the officers there for the most part for a while. And then I think fifty fifty one comes by. Colin? Col Col I'm not sure how you say it. Oh, uh yeah, I can't remember the name of the of the colonel. Um It was K H O L I N. Oh yes. Holin. Holin. Yeah, yeah. Anytime you see like K H mm-hmm. uh, it's actually like this huh sound that we don't really have in English. So yeah, Holin is the Holin. Okay. And Holin uh he arrives and then you realise, oh the kid actually is legit and he uh, loves him like a son and um they there's more hanging out and then they discuss whether ivan should go to military school and they tell him well you're in a school and he's like no i'm not gonna run away and he does run away and you get this really touching scene with this old man and his destroyed home and his pet chicken and um he uh, ivan gets uh, recaptured and they hang out for a bit again and there's whatever time he falls asleep, there's a dream sequence of him thinking back to his mother or his, I guess the young girl is his sister. I'm not really sure. Yeah, I think she is. Yeah. 
and uh, and then there's another mission that he can go on. They take him, they re- recall him from military school, which you never see him in military school. It's all set like around this one impromptu base that they set up. Yeah, one side of a river that they're trying to cross. Yep, and uh, they go on like this mission that I'm not really sure what the mission was. I, I was looking up to see if it was a reference to a specific part of World War Two in the Soviet Union, but I couldn't find anything concrete of it oh, being yeah. a reference. It's I, I, that makes me feel better because I couldn't quite work out exactly what they were, what they were trying to achieve either. Beyond like they do recover the bodies of two adult scouts yeah. who'd got captured by the Germans and executed. Um, yeah, and, and Ivan is uh, he's twelve, so he's small, so he can sneak. It's easier for him to sneak around, and um, he kind of has this uh, like freak out in the dark where he's kind of playing pretend on getting revenge for the people who kill his family because it's never clear ha- what happened to his family. You know that like they were killed, and there's mention of a, a death camp. I forgot which mm-hmm. one, but there's mention of a death camp, and I think it's supposed to uh, lead you to assume that his parents were sit- sent to a death camp and his sister too probably yeah i don't know i i got the impression from that like dream slash memory sequence the second one that his mother and possibly his sister as well was uh, shot by some german soldiers who just came into their village that's the impression i got from that scene and i think his father was just killed because he was at the front like i think he was just fighting in the war and like Many Soviet soldiers didn't make it back. But, yeah, that's what I thought the deal was with that. Oh, okay. It's unclear, the exact uh, thing. Oh, sure, yeah. Like, you you kind of hear some gunshots and you see the mother fall down, but you don't see who shot her or, like, where exactly she was when it happened. So, yeah, it is super ambiguous, like you say. Yeah, um, okay, so... Uh, Ivan runs off uh, on this mission, and you cut to later. It's unclear how much later, yeah, but it's later, and I forgot how you say the Colonel's name already. Colin. Yeah. yeah, and he went through narration that Galtsev is still alive. Presumably he's been promoted. Poland was uh, shot, and they're in Berlin going through some building. And uh, there's all these files of children. I think you only yeah. see children. I don't remember seeing any adults. Yeah, but they, they read a long list of names and how they were executed, like whether they were hung or whether they were shot, at least in the version of the subtitles that I saw. Yeah, and they, and uh, he comes across a file uh, of Ivan, and he reads it, and you learn he was hanged, and... Uh, you cut to uh, a dream sequence of him and his sister running on the beach, and the last shot is a shot of a of a dead tree on the beach, and uh, that's it. Yeah, cool. Well, thank you for that summary. Like Tarkovsky is not somebody who majors in plot. I think it's fair to say. So yeah, yeah, he doesn't seem interested in a detailed plot. He seems more interested in emotion and. Uh, well, I guess emotion, but his movies aren't very expressive. Like, the character's never that hugely expressive. It's kind of more like he... He's not like David Lynch, where it's surreal, but, like, it's it, it's dreamlike, but it's also kind of grounded at the same time. I think he kind of, like, 
doesn't join up all the dots for you. He puts a bunch of things there and it's kind of your job to figure out how they fit together in a way. Yeah, um, I'm reading a book on Ozu right now and Ozu had the same philosophy on plot Mm. where he didn't like movies with detailed plots. He felt that got in the way. So Mm. he would purposely just give you enough information for you to fill in the gaps yourself. And Tarkovsky takes that little step further where I think he, he leaves you with not even just enough. He gives you like maybe half of what Oza would give you for a plot, which is not much to begin with. And it's kind of like, you know, figure it out for yourself. And Tarkovsky is... Uh, a bit more difficult than Ozu, and definitely not as warm as Ozu, but mm. they still kind of play in that same school of it's more about just the characters and the environment than than like Hitchcock was with like telling like a tight uh, like suspense story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's almost like he gives you like a jigsaw puzzle, but he's deliberately taken out like quite a lot of the the picture and just gone. Okay, well, just you know fill in the rest with your imagination. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know whether that's really a fair analogy, but it's certainly like when you're used to films, like having a philosophy of we will tie up the loose ends and kind of make everything pretty clear because we don't want you to get frustrated that you don't understand totally what's going on. That makes it quite a weird watch and almost like semi-frustrating because it's like, hang on, I'm not quite sure what I just watched there. Yeah, at least that's that's been... I think I've seen four out of seven or five out of seven of his films now. And mm-hmm. this probably is the one, like you said, that's most accessible and therefore you feel least like that. But still, there's, there's an element of, uh, I'm not quite sure what's going on here. And uh, I actually mentioned this film in a previous episode on Stalingrad uh, and just talking about general Mm. war films and how this one really kind of stands out. And it was a weird comparison to make, but I compared it with uh, with Dunkirk, which seems really counterintuitive because that's quite spectacular, whereas this is quite Mm -hmm. low key. But I think the thing that I saw in it that was similar was that it's it's very much the story told from from one side because you hardly see the germans at all they're nearly always in the distance at one point you see a party of them like just passing by in the night but like it never really focuses its attention on them which is something dunkirk does as well and it also like hones in yeah and dunkirk you also you never see the germans the whole time no. But but you feel their presence, where, like, with this, uh, you actually do see some Germans, and they seem fairly, like, in the context that you see them, it's fairly benign, and they're just kind of going on patrol, and they don't seem to take it too seriously, mm-hmm. which is, like, kind of like a weird, a weird light moment, almost. Yeah, yeah, they're just kind of, like, on a night march. And that film, it's it's kind of tension being ratcheted up the whole time, whereas this, this doesn't have that at all most it has it at moments but most of the time it feels like the enemy's quite a long way away but you're still never totally safe but it isn't kind of like that impending like peril our heroes are gonna die any minute it's ratcheting up you know Uh, it doesn't have that but uh i did i just quite appreciate that compared to 
war movies that are more like action movies and are kind of like just quite gung ho and yeah, like my, my favorite war movies are more along this line where it's kind of just a story about what it's like to live in war times. Like this, this is my second favorite World War Two movie. My first favorite is Closely Watched Trains. This Czech New Wave movie about a teen who lives in a Czech town who works at the train station and he's trying to lose his virginity. And <laughs> yeah, and he kind of gets involved in Czech resistance. And um, it's just like it, the Nazis are there and you feel their presence, but it's but it's also not like this thrilling like the propaganda like piece. It's just kind of like. Well, this teenager happens to be a teenager at this point in time, and he wants to have sex. And this is just like, uh, he's just living in this wartime, and this is just the experience of what it's like to be, you know, a child who's kind of trapped in this situation. Yeah, so it's kind of like a coming-of-age movie. It just so happens that this particular kid is coming-of-age with that going on in the background. Yeah. Huh. And also, closely watched trains is uh, the Nazis are standing for the communist government in um, Czechoslovakia at the time. Yeah, back then. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think they split up like very early nineties. And the Nazis were standing, and uh, is a way to get the government and point out how inept they were. And mm. uh, it, I think it was towards the end that was one of the last ones able to do that because then. The uh, government kind of cracked down, and there's a uh, some shit went down, and uh, they couldn't make those movies anymore because oh, the government yeah, yeah. Uh, finally realized what was happening. Yeah, yeah. If you're right in saying it was made in Czechoslovakia, yeah, then you would have had the Prague Spring, and then the Soviet reaction to that, and you know, sending tanks in and whatever, and them enforcing a, a much more like hardline government from then on. So yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah. But um, I I like Irish childhood kind of uh, tying it to close watch trains. It's just a child's experience during World War Two, and like this would be like where Irish childhood is just is just a portion of his childhood. As you get the sense of well, he has to fend for himself because there's literally no one else out there to help him. I feel like it could have been like a Jungle Book type story almost, mm. but. Like it happens to be set during World War Two, and he and like he gets help from the military, and uh, you know, like I don't know. Yeah, I th- I thought it was interesting you, the point you made earlier about how he sort of conv- almost convinced himself that he's an adult, and he gets really annoyed with people treating him like a child. And I can I can remember feeling that way when I was you know eleven or twelve. It's just like, why are you? telling me what to do i'm you know i i know what's going on just don't you know take me for an idiot because i haven't been around as long as as you have um so in that regard yeah it reminded me of being that sort of an age obviously in rather more like mundane circumstances yeah but like but i just like the because like the whole movie's playing with him with ivan like being forced to grow up too fast and yeah that's, that's that's at least how i feel because his family is dead and he's he's seen some horrible things he's seen, he's in a death camp yeah and i guess he snuck in but he seemed but he always he says it like as if he like saw like the gas chambers or something and again it's never clearly explained but all you know he he has seen things that the other soldiers he encounters have never seen even like the colonel 
who loves him like a son, like tells uh, Galtsev, tells him like, well, I think it's something like he's seen things that you haven't. Yeah, yeah, because because Galtsev is, although he's like a, a junior officer, he's he's quite a young guy as well. He's maybe like twenty two, twenty three, and he's quite dismissive of Ivan. He's like at one point, it's when he's talking on the phone. The word they use is malchishka, and mm-hmm. the normal word for boy is malchik. It's just like a neutral word for boy but like if you use the diminutive like that the way he does like the best english translation would be is like some little kid Um, okay and he says this like right in front of ivan which he's you know he's not happy about that Um, oh no yeah particularly because he has proved himself to be really brave and resourceful and the older officers who've known him for longer do you know they do give him a certain amount of respect especially the the colonel although the colonel ends up sort of falling out with him by like as you mentioned during the summary by uh trying to send him away to uh, to military school kind of the implication is for his own protection mm-hmm. um but yeah ivan says well i don't have anyone i want to be useful i think he specifically says you you mentioned the the scene with uh with the old man when ivan runs away that time i wanted to go into a bit more detail on that one as that was one of the ones that really stuck with me the first time i watched it it's a really good scene yeah it's really heartbreaking and touching and uh so human where like this he kind of comes across this destroyed house and like but the door frame is still intact and like part of the wall is still intact the old man's just looking for a nail to hang a picture and it's just and you see him with it with his pet chicken on like on a leash yeah. and it's just and it's just like this very like bittersweet scene of him being like oh well who are you what are you doing here and he's not even upset he's just curious who his kid is yeah and you you get the, the impression that that guy is super traumatized and also, as well as the the doors surviving, the the stove survives as well. And I, I possibly reading too much much into it, but he repeats a couple of times saying that you know that this this stove and this chimney will always survive. And I wondered whether this was kind of like an allusion to the. It sounds really pretentious to say, but uh, to the Russian people because. Like the stove was, from what I understand, it's super important in. It was like the most important bit of like a a peasant's house going, you know, way mm. back, you know, in uh, and for a a long time in in Russian history. And like, I guess by the time this film was being made, that was kind of obviously being phased out as as things became you know increasingly urbanized and more and more people moved away from the villages, but. It was basically the thing that stopped you dying in the middle of winter is that you had this this stove going and during the night everyone would sleep around it because of the or even, you know, on, in some cases like on like shelves built onto it because of the residual heat. And that's how you stayed warm. So it was kind of like way more significant than just like an oven is to hmm. someone in the West. At least that's how I understood it. So, oh. uh, no, that's a good point. I never, never even thought that thought of like a stove as being key to like survival and like the harsh winters and stuff. 
Yeah, yeah, it was it was super important. I mean, this is very much the point where any Russian listeners, if I'm talking absolute rubbish, please write in and <laughs> correct me. But that that is sort of like, as far as I understand it, what he might have been getting at with that. And also in that scene, I like that the last thing that you see is you see, or rather you hear the old man locking the front door. <laughs> and it's kind of like... It's totally futile because, you know, he doesn't have any walls, really. You can just walk in. But it, it's still like he's doing that to give him some, himself some kind of sense of security in, in a place where that's completely fallen by the wayside. And he's just walking around his house looking, in like, um, looking for that one nail. And Ivan immediately finds a nail and says, no, that's the wrong one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he just says it so casually, like, Oh no, oh no! It's a it's a special nail. It's a, it's a straight nail, and the one I even had is like well, slightly bent. And it's yeah. like, oh man, this guy has been yeah. I can't know how long he's been living like this. But you can just sense he's been living like this for a while. And he mentions his wife who was killed, and he mentions that I've been like, uh, are you missing anyone? You probably are. Yeah, just kind of like casually, like because as much as people, you know, on the western allied side of world war Two, lots of people were killed it just wasn't anything compared to what was going on on the eastern front it was just horrific like everyone knew somebody who who'd been killed pretty much sorry that went super heavy but um yeah that's something we, we tend to forget oh yeah the the allies won because of the soviet union but in america that part of narrative is not really discussed at least in like in high school and college classes, not really. Yeah, similar over here. It's kind of like we in Britain like to pat, pat ourselves on the back that we were the bit of Europe that didn't fall, which you know it's very helpful when you when there's a, a big stretch of water, you know, insulating you from uh, from the continent. But yeah, we don't often acknowledge just how many people the Soviets lost in the war effort like and like i remember hearing the statistic that germany lost seven out of eight of, of their casualties was on the eastern front so oh, yeah so it seems like for us the like normandy landings and and also the war in italy were major massive huge deals which they were of course but it's just that that was happening on a much bigger scale over there and that's yeah, you kind of wonder whether some of the continuing, like, I guess, political tensions and just general, like, unpopularity of Westerners in Russia is the fact that we're <laughs> not very good at acknowledging that that they had a really, really bad time of it. Yeah, I'm not sure if this anecdote is true, but apparently this is like, I remember in high school where um, the Germans, once the British and Americans were, got there towards the end, the, they would surrender to the uh, to them first before the Russians, because he knew the Russians would uh, be a lot more harsh uh, in in treating them. Yeah, I think I'd heard similar things. Like they were much less scared of the of um, the Americans and and the British wanting revenge in the same way. So yeah, I, I c- certainly that's something I've I've encountered that may well be true. 
But yeah, no, it is. I, I always enjoy seeing World War Two movies from a different like side of things. So so yeah, this is definitely if you're at all interested in seeing World War Two movies, this seems like it's an essential one, really. Yeah, it's it's a different front and it's a different perspective. And uh, you know, instead of it being like a man on a mission thing, where it's like about like a like a John Wayne type or. I don't know who a British equivalent of John Wayne would be. I don't know, like Michael Caine. Yeah, yeah, like Sean like, Connery. <laughs> yeah, like a, like a Sean Connery. If he did a he, like World War Two pictures, like this is the opposite. This is just like you know what it'd be like if you were a child and you his had to survive. Yeah, and ultimately he doesn't, which is which is again something that often in Western films it's too much considered too much of a downer to end with them not making it through you know yeah and this was this was uh considered for this was the soviet entry for the oscar for best foreign film but it did not make the cut mm. yeah i think it won one of the f- international uh, festivals i think the it might venice. Be venice yeah the golden right. lion uh, uh seven samurai won i think the silver lion there i know kurosawa he was kind of big there at, at one point at the venice festival but um yeah and i think i think uh, kurosawa and tarkovsky like met quite a bit and admired each other's work a lot even though they were you know quite different in terms of their style oh yeah they were definitely they were fans of each other it was during dare was all uh, uh kurosawa and him apparently got drunk uh, at a bar and uh they started singing the theme to seven samurai <laughs> nice uh, well, it was during filming that and the Moscow Film Festival, International Film Festival, where Mafune was a judge there. And, um, yeah, so maybe Mafune could have been there, given that they're, that they're drinking. Mafune probably was there with them. <laughs> yeah, yes, from what from what you've said about him in, like, the special episode you did on Mafune, yeah. He doesn't seem like somebody to miss out on the opportunity to have a few drinks. Know. Going back to like individual scenes, there was one that was I found super awkward. It was the one where Holland meets and is kind of really strongly hitting on. I think she's she's a nurse. Um, she's kind of like a military nurse because she's in military uniform rather than a nurse's uniform. But she's called Marsha, and she's like she's also like early twenties, similar age to Galtsev, whereas Holland is probably like mid to late 30s i would guess but yeah how did you find that one it was weird because like it felt kind of like he's breathing predatory mm. and like this like in the lurking in the background and like trying to get her attention but at the same time you got the sense of she was just simply used to that because she's the only woman there like yeah and so like there's a sense of she's this i don't say just, just taking it but she just has to you know, take it in stride and just do her best to ignore it. But then she kind of finds him kind of charming at a certain point. Cause it, it, it's never Maybe. like, it's not, it's never like Sean Connery level. Like, uh, oh no. <laughs> like, it's not him in like, uh, in, in James Bond mode where it's like, oh, this doesn't age well. It's just kind of like going a little too far and being a little too persistent. But I don't know. Yeah, he's he's basically like he's just quite patronizing to her. It's like 
oh, are you scared? You know, what kind of soldier are you? And at the same time hitting on her. But then uh, he, like, dares her to climb up this log. Yeah. That's, like, at a, that's, that's, that, uh, is that an angle? And she climbs up the log farther than she has to, and instead of jumping down into his arm, she climbs back down the way yeah. she climbed up, which was a great way of showing, like, she was, it, you could tell she was uncomfortable, but she oh, yeah. stood her ground, and that was not, not, not necessarily a feminist mo- moment, but it definitely was empowering moment of, like, even though she could have this given in, because that's the easier 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 thing to do she she defied his advances and then and then there's this and then they there's one moment where they kiss and i get the, i got the feeling that she was the one who probably initiated it yeah i don't know it, it, do you mean the bit where she's trying to jump across like the the really long trench yeah um and she sort of refuses his offer of help across but he ends up kind of like grabbing her and like holding her over it's a really weird shot. It's very memorable if you've seen it. Oh yeah, and like the camera like dips into the trench when they yeah. when, when she moves too, which is a really like the camera the active like this sounds pretentious as an, as an active character a lot of time because it's the movie is very up close and personal with oh yeah the, with the characters yeah some of the very early shots of uh, of Ivan when just after the dream sequence and he's he's woken up and he's somewhere you know on the front line a lot of it's this incredibly low angle and looking up at him and it's it's quite striking because you're just not used to seeing things shot from that angle um in a lot of things but yeah no you're you're totally right the 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 camera kind of goes all over the place but mostly it's quite it's quite close in yeah, and like the in the like the more first moments is him in this, him running to a spider web, and then the camera like climbs a tree, and I can't help to wonder like because it's it's very stable, so that means someone had to like lug a heavy camera on their shoulder climbing a tree. Like I'm not sure how that was done exactly, because you get like the angle of like looking down from the tree, so it's not like a not like a trick. It felt like it was actually done for real. Yeah, yeah, and um, I don't think from what you've said that you've seen Andrei Rublyov. No, not yet. That's quite an ordeal, but some of the camera work in that is kind of like, how did you do this? Because it's just going along, and it would seem like it must have been on rails, but you'd think, how are these not getting in the shot, you know? Particularly with, I mean, I'm no cinema expert, just with how heavy the cameras were back then, how they achieved some of the things that they achieve in that film. It's just really impressive. Uh, on my blog, I covered a series of Yakuza films called Battle Without Honor and Humanity. Oh, yeah. And the camera, like the cameras they used, which was like the old movie camera, was heavy and clunky. And the camera work in those movies is very up close and personal and kind of like this, but... It's a bit more furious with just like the movement and stuff. And like for those movies, the director Kenji Fukasaku had a cameraman who was a, a war photographer in Dormal or Two, who was used to lugging around heavy cameras because the the camera work was so intense in those movies that um, he needed someone who was used to having something that heavy on him to like run up and and jump and 
and sprint and like twist around and stuff. Where this feels like he probably the cameraman probably had the endurance to like this lug around a, a big heavy camera. Because I can't imagine it was light. No, no, not in like I guess 1961. I think this would have been shot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I like how nature is in this because you don't really see animals and like the, the whole like you never get a sense of life in the natural world is just this desolate wasteland mm. and it feels frozen in time until the end where there's where it starts to snow but before that it's just like like i got to sense like this nature is just is frozen and like there's no not even like a gust of wind or anything it's just still and empty yeah and you get lots of lots of shots of like trees that are still st- Standing, but they've kind of had all their branches burnt off and there's some plant life but yeah you don't see much much in the way of animals except in some dream sequences and that sort of brings me on to some continuities with other Tarkovsky films that I've seen it's kind of interesting this being the first one that there is recurring images like he loves a shot of a horse I don't remember whether there are horses in... Uh, in Stalker at all, but there certainly are a lot in Andrei Rublyov and Solaris, funnily enough, which you wouldn't mm. necessarily anticipate for a movie that's mostly set on a space station, but there are there's some, like, gratuitous horses, and it's just something that he likes in his film films a lot. If he can have a horse in there, he'll have one. I think he just thought they were cinematic, so um, that was kind of interesting, and also some continuity in terms of personnel, because the child actor who plays Ivan mm. turns up in Andrei Rublev in the last like main sequence, which is the one about the the forging of this church bell. So that was quite nice. You briefly see, because I think they're in a like a bombed out old church, but you see quite an old style looking bell that mm-hmm. uh, Ivan rings at one point, and that's yeah, it's this it's the same actor. Oh, yeah, and he's still alive actually. Yeah, he is. Yeah, I guess he's getting on a bit, but. Um, yeah, and also in terms of continuity, you have... The landscape felt like Stalker to me a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, except obviously, like, less... I don't know, it's kind of, like, broken down in a different way because it's broken down in, in Stalker just because things have been abandoned for a long time, so it's kind of like the... mostly, like, the slow decay of time, whereas this is very much, like, stuff has been blown up with bombs, that's kind of the closest you get to like seeing the Germans most of the time is you just see like explosions and you hear gunfire in the distance. Yeah, I like them wading through a swamp. That just that made me think of certain scenes of Stalker with like the with all the water and that and like this you see reflections in the water and um, that's kind of the main thing. Like this, when I think of Stalker, I mean I think of this like wading through water. Yeah, that's another continuity thing. Tarkovsky loves bodies of water and he also likes rain. You feel like when he has those things in the film, it's not just incidental, it's not just, oh, it happens to be raining. It's kind of like, we're having some rain and I will focus on the fact that it's raining and that because he dwells on it, you almost experience, you almost feel like you're being rained on just because of how much he dwells on it. Oh, yeah. Which is kind of cool. You know, if you're going to have something in a film, you know, take the time to make people experience it, I guess. I, I like uh, this going back to Ozu again, but Ozu in 
the way he had used time in his movies was there's no clear indication of time at any point. It's just kind of just, it feels, it's like the pace of real life. And it's, and like this kind of feels like this, like just the pace of real life where like, you know, time is passing, but in most cases it's not really that noticeable. Yeah. Cause he'll have stuff in there. That's just kind of incidental. Like, like at one point he's just kind of like drying. I don't know. He's ha- He's had a bath and he's just kind of like drying himself. And that's not, you know, particularly interesting, but it's just, yeah, like you say, it's more like how we actually experience the passage of time rather than, you know, most most movies kind of only include stuff that's inherently interesting. Yeah, I like the detail of, well, like wartime sucks, but it doesn't mean you're always fighting. There's downtime and like it, it depends on like the war, but in this case, like, they seem to have us a lot of downtime just preparing for this assault because, like, it, they get the feeling that um, a massive battle had just happened, given like, so, like the lack of people and just the stillness of everything, and them planning a new recon mission for uh, Ivan, and they also want to send him away. So it kind of feels like something. Like, there's going to be a big attack happening soon-ish, and it's just kind of the in-between time of, well, something is going to happen at some point. There's no one is very sure when that's when it's going to be. Yeah, so you kind of have just the boredom of hanging around waiting for either decisions to be made or, like, reinforcements or and or supplies to show up. Yeah, which, you know, I quite enjoy my military history for whatever reason and that's something people talk about is that the experience of being at war films make it sound like it's all excitement and stuff going on and it's always terrifying the whole time whereas from yeah accounts that i've heard often it's just quite boring because you're just waiting for stuff to happen and there's not a lot that you can really be getting on with you just have to pass the time until something's ready to happen so that's kind of interesting seeing somebody actually try and capture that on film even though it's not always the most exciting to watch and that's something like if you've not watched it it's not exciting the whole time so it is worth definitely worth watching it's it's gorgeous it's it's a very stripped down like simple movie about war it's just kind of set in the in-between time where it's you know it's not much. It's Tarkovsky, so if you're to Tarkovsky and you haven't seen this, you know what you're getting, which, I mean, there's not um, as much to say at this point, but um, do you have any, like, Im- like imagery from the set really sticks with you? I remember, like, it's very early on, just you have, it's before he's met up with the rest of the local, like, Soviet forces, This this one shot where you have, it's kind of like a hillside, and it's kind of like slanted across across the screen and you just see see these kind of like wisps of black smoke like there's been explosions nearby and that's something i i definitely remember from the last time and just kind of seeing bits of debris and you just see ivan just walking away from you and then it sort of switches to another angle and walks towards you it's like it doesn't sound that exciting but it's it's just really nicely shot i mean that sounds really banal but and also some of the boat scenes at night towards the end, they're like quite striking as well, just like the contrast. Yeah, wow. I got kind of a, uh, uh, what is it, movie called? Uh, Night of the Hunter 
kind of reminds me of those boat scenes if you've seen Night of the Hunter. No, I've not seen that one. No, it's uh, Robert Mitchum, uh, who went to high school in Delaware because he was a, a troublemaker. His family sent him to Delaware because there'd be nothing to do. But that <laughs> didn't really work. He was still a troublemaker. But um, Robert Mitchum is this preacher who uh, who marries widows, and uh, he a fake preacher, and he has tattooed on his fingers so that when he makes a fist, one says love, one says hate. Oh, that's where that comes from. Yeah, and it kind of slowly turns into a horror movie in the second half because the uh, the two kids of his new wife are immediately suspicious of him, and there's a whole thing of he was in prison, and uh, his cellmate was the uh, husband was the was husband, but he was sent to he got the death penalty, and he has a whole bunch of money hidden somewhere, and so he just wants the money, and he is this is just the newest widow. And, like, a whole thing of, like, a whole long line of women he's going to take advantage of to get what money they have from their dead husband. And it's uh, it's really good. It's It was a failure at the time in 55, but it became a classic, and the director never got to make another movie because it was such a failure. <sighs> oh, no. Yeah, sometimes doing something that's a bit <laughs> out there. Banal com- comment, but, yeah, it uh, doesn't always pay off, yeah. Yeah, but uh, back more to uh, childhood, the boat scenes at night kind of remind me of that, where it's just this beautiful shot, like this pad, like with oars and paddling at night. And I think it was a night scene where you see this down German plane, just in the beach, and it's just this, they slowly go past it, and it's just one of those like breathtaking moments in a movie I've seen recently. We're just like, you just can't take your eyes off it because you're like, I, I got to see what that thing is. And then you see what it is, and it's just, it's just the power, like the, for some reason, like World War II planes, this are this really striking and beautiful to see on camera. At least I, I think they're like this, there's something about that design that is just so eye, eye-catching. Yeah, they're, they're more in- interesting, like, aesthetically than more modern planes, which seem like... I don't know, super functional. I mean, obviously they were functional back then as well, and they weren't, like, designing them to look nice, but they seem, like, more memorable somehow, because, like, one fighter jet, at least as somebody who's not really into fighter jets, they all look kind of much of a muchness to me, whereas those World War Two planes seem a bit more... Uh, I know what you mean. Like, the fighter jets of now are definitely more... They're better for combat and stuff oh sure <laughs> but they but they just don't look as individual and as cool as like the as like the bombers and the the warplanes of world war Two, which were used to kill people which is terrible but but i understand like why people are also are so fascinated with like world war Two in terms of like like vehicles and stuff because there's something just about like the that technology that is yeah. just kind of eye-catching and in a way that's that like other war technology is not as eye catching. Yeah, it's kind of weird, isn't it? In terms of like the, this is kind of a bit of a tangent, but you kind of mentioned how Night of the Hunter kind of develops into being like a horror movie towards the end. Yeah. I felt like the last bit of the film in Berlin had kind of like a slightly horror element to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously earlier on you do see those two scouts hanging and it returns to them quite a few times but it just goes from kind of mild unpleasant stuff you know it's mostly stuff that's off screen that's happening to just like you see this guillotine and you see these 
these like nooses that are made of wire and stuff and all this these oh, sort yeah. of implements of death at the end and it's kind of like it's sort of like you almost forget that they're not forget but it's not super emphasized that they're fighting the nazis during the film it's not like swastikas everywhere or you know you do hear some german but it's not like i don't know it's not as emphasized as it is in other world war Two movies that you see it's like Remember, we're, everyone, we're fighting the Nazis and the Nazis are horrible, except that last bit at the end. It's kind of like, oh, yeah, by the way, in case you'd forgotten, the Nazis <laughs> were awful and they committed all sorts of atrocities. And it's just kind of like, I'm sure it's like meant to be jarring, but it is because that's not like continuous element through the film. It's, it, it's, all like, it's almost like more like, oh, whoa, wow. <laughs> yeah, makes you kind of sit up. Oh yeah, and um, the, there's a whole subplot of a phonograph, and uh, the guy wants to play this re- not record. I don't know, black cylinder that phonograph. No, no, I think I think it is genuinely like a a record. Because uh, the guy has like this song about a woman named Masha, which kind of is a, a interesting. It plays into a plot, but there's like a line about not that the thing right on the wall. Because before, oh, yes, yes, which you see earlier on, like there, uh, and you see it in the very first scene. But I don't know about your version, but my mm-hmm. in my version, the subtitles don't explain it until like a later scene where it like dwells on it. But you see it briefly in the background. Yeah, the the this writing on the wall says something like, "There are eight of us, each of us no older than nineteen. In an hour, they will take us to be killed. Avenge us." Yeah, and, like, before Ivan and them leave for their final mission, like, you you see a shot of the the scribbling on the wall, and it says, in an hour, they'll they'll take us. And then, cut to, you know, you learn Ivan was taken and killed. So it's kind of like this weird omen of, like, it's telling you exactly what will happen. But, but like, like, my first thought was, like, that's too on the nose. And then it happens, like, oh. That was like that was completely on purpose. But yeah, so I get so I guess that is a when you bring that bit of writing on the wall, it, it is like a common thread. I suppose it's just like in terms of the actual imagery that you're seeing, mostly it's not that horrific until you get to that final scene, and then it's like, oh yeah, yeah, it's real jarring, especially considering it's it's children. Uh, oh yeah they don't explicitly say it was children that were killed using these uh using these mechanisms i don't even want to say what they are because it's children but um if you're paying attention like you'll you'll realize oh no those are used kill 12 year olds and 13 year olds it's not like this is like where they killed you know like they weren't they were like barely into puberty yeah it's it's really really horrible i mean later on in the this series i'm planning to cover Come and See, which I understand is kind of like that, except, like, all the way through. But, uh, yeah, it was just it was just kind of interesting how they how they did that. I'm not quite sure what my my point is. I, 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 guess, I guess I'm just saying, if you haven't seen the film already, compared to some World War II films, it's quite tame, but there's still, like, implicitly some upsetting stuff to be aware of. But, yeah. It's, um... Yeah, it, it definitely is worth watching. It's uh, the runtime uh, makes it definitely worth watching if you are un- iffy on Tarkovsky. Start with this because it's I think it's a short movie by a long shot. 
Yeah, I think Mirror's not that long, but Mirror's more difficult than this, I would say. Yeah, just, uh, like, you know, just go with, start this if you like it, then maybe go Stalker. I may have thinking of watching Stalker first, because I, <laughs> I had no clue uh, who Tarkovsky was. It's kind of like, oh, this movie sounds cool. And I, I loved it, but I haven't seen it since, because it's just, I don't know, I, I it's just uh, Stalker Stalker. It's a special movie. And um, this, I feel like I could rewatch a whole bunch of times and still enjoy it, because it's not, like, oppressive. Like, it's not oppressively dark until the end, and it's kind of weirdly, it's kind of light, but it's also kind of down-to-earth and, like, not gritty, but, like, it's just, this is what World War II was like, and there's no, it's, like, no bullshit. It's just, you know, the, if you want to know what it's like for Soviets in downtime, th th this was it. This is just what it was like. And, um, like, compared to Stalker, like, the characters are, are a lot warmer. It's not as cold as Stalker is, which I feel like that could put put people off to, to Tarkovsky, where, like, this feels kind of warm in terms of, like, his character work where with, uh, like, like, it, like, it seems like, like, yeah, I don't know, like, like, Stalker reminds me of, like, Kubrick a little bit with like the approach where it's kind of like it's beautiful to look at but it's also kind of distant and it's forcing you just to fill in the blanks where this is a little more like he, he will give you some more stuff so it's easier to, to digest plus his character work I think is is better yeah like it's easier to identify with the people on screen whereas yeah. like Stalker there's people on screen but none of them are particularly I mean, not not that like having likable characters is the be all and end all, but you almost kind of have to sometimes kind of at least sort of see yourself in their shoes, which is quite hard to do with Stalker. Yeah, this is just um, definitely entry level, like a Russian art house, not art house, but like uh, entry level or like uh, like Soviet films. Like this, if you want to start watching more Russian films, this is a good place to begin because it's Tarkovsky and it's the runtime is wonderful compared to some other uh, Russian films and uh, it's not as grim and dark and it's easy to digest for the most part yeah and it's not there's plenty of dialogue but it's not massively just people in rooms talking to each other in extremely dense prose you know it's there's a lot more space than that it's not just dialogue the whole time which can make watching any film, you know, when you're watching it with subtitles, quite hard work. So yeah, like you say, this is a bit more accessible. Cool. So if people are interested in hearing more from from you, Spencer, where should they go internet-wise? Um, check out High and Low, a Kershaw podcast. It's where me and former uh, guests on the show, Joel, take a Kershaw movie and pick another Japanese movie from the same year and uh, talk about them. And two separate episodes, and we do special episodes. And we just did one on Sword of Doom with Tony Stella, who is a wonderful artist, and he's super knowledgeable on pretty much anything relating to movies. If it's like Japanese or like French or Italian or whatever, like he will do most of the talking for you if you want him <laughs> on. But us also, he's just he's just a, is a a great guest to have on he's super knowledgeable and uh yeah we have him to talk about tatsuya nakadai and uh samurai movies and uh 
you know, stuff like that. And I will be on Flix 5 Canada talking about uh, David and Lisa in a month-ish time. I'm not sure when it's coming out. Oh, it will definitely be out by the time this is out, so... Okay, yeah. So, but yeah, by the time this is out, uh, that will already happen. But uh, I'll see, I have a blog, uh, Jailhouse 701, Japanese Cult Cinema, and by the time this is out, I should be done my series on Hideo Gosha, who was a director who made Samurai and Yakuza movies, and he was kind of like, uh, his movies were sleazy, but also prestigious, and like, got critical acclaim, and... Kind of related to World War II, he was uh, drafted into war when he was 15. Uh, this was 1945, and he was in the Kamikaze unit. He was supposed to go on his final mission for an emperor, but it never happened. And so uh, that kind of influenced his filmmaking and his whole life philosophy and stuff, and ties into his childhood with like the, the war and whatnot. But yeah, it's called The, the Line Between Sleaze and Prestige. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Because his movies are super sleazy, but also, like... Uh, well put together. <laughs> yeah. Like, he knew what he was doing. And I think that's it. Awesome. Well, thanks very much, Spencer. You've been a fantastic guest. And, yeah, we should definitely check those out. So, thanks, everyone, for listening. And das Vidania, folks. So that's it for this episode, but before I go, I'd like to thank Sasha Ilukovic and the Highly Skilled Migrants for the use of their song Cold in our intro. You can find that song and the rest of their back catalogue on Bandcamp and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting us by leaving a rating at Apple Podcasts or at podchaser.com. That second one, Podchaser, even lets you rate individual episodes, so if this episode particularly stood out to you, you can let other listeners know that you enjoyed it. Recommending the show on social media is hugely helpful as well. If you can spare a moment or two to do that, it would really make my day. Thank you, thank you very much. Speaking of social media... Please find us and say hi on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. You can also drop us a line at roosfilesunite at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, take care of yourselves, and bye for now. <laughs>